This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Breaking legislative gridlock, the United States Senate recently passed the Postal Service Reform Act by a vote of 79 to 19. The House of Representatives had passed the same bill last month by a vote of 342 to 92. The bill now goes to President Biden's desk to be signed into law. The U.S. Postal Service became deeply politicized during Donald Trump's administration. U.S. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, a Trump appointee, took steps designed to undermine the efficiency and solvency of a government agency that Americans rely on. Well, is the Postal Service Reform Act enough to fix all or most of USPS's problems? Joining me to help answer that question is Monique Morrissey, economist at the Economic Policy Institute. She's an expert on the U.S. Postal Service, and we had spoken to her just, just about a year ago. Welcome back to the program, Monique. Hi, thanks for having me, Sonali. So first, let's talk about what it is that is in this act. And as I said, you know, it's kind of rare to see the two parties come together to pass anything these days. And I would have thought, considering that there has been contention and political bickering over what the U.S. Postal Service represents, that there would have been more of a fight over it. But it seemed pretty bipartisan, which then led me to worry maybe it's somewhat toothless. But you tell me whether the U.S. Um, Postal Service Reform Act, what exactly it does. Hi. Well, first of all, I share your suspicions, but in this case, I think it actually is a good thing, despite the fact that there was broad agreement on it. Um, usually that signals something that's weak or, you know, ineffectual or even bad, but not in this case. I think this is really long overdue and it's a good thing. Um, the main thing that the most important part of the Postal Service Reform Act is that it does away with um, you know, it's $107 billion going to the Postal Service to do away with a mandate to pre-fund retiree health care that was part of a bill passed in 2006 and has basically been crushing the Postal Service, you know, for the past 15 years. Um, and so it was long overdue. People recognized a long time ago that this that we that there was no other company, private sector, government agency, no other entity had this obligation to pre-fund decades and decades of retiree healthcare in advance. Um, and it was really, cause, you know, it, 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 there's no reason that the Postal Service should have to do it or anybody else should have to do it. And that was what was causing the Postal Service to have this unearned reputation for being always in the, in the red or bankrupt or inefficient when really all it really was happening was that it was saddled with this burden. So the uh, Reform Act actually does away with that. Um, and, and just to recap, that particular requirement was designed to try to undermine and cripple the Postal Service, right? Yes and no. Uh, so it would seem that way. And certainly the reason it stuck around for so many years is definitely because it made the Postal Service and by extension, the broader government look bad. So it gave the Postal Service, again, I mentioned this unearned reputation for being inefficient when really it wasn't inefficient at all. In fact, the Postal Service is hyper efficient, has you know, uh, delivers more to more addresses with fewer people. Um, it's, you know, used to have 800,000 full-time employees around the turn of the century. Now it's got, I mean, turn of the last century, I mean, in 2000. Um, and now it's about 500,000 employees. It's highly automated. It's a very, very efficient, bare, you know, too efficient. It's bare bones kind of system. Um, it needs to expand into other services. It actually needs to grow and not shrink. 
Um, but because of this obligation that you know to prefund this retiree health care very quickly, so decades, 70 years into the future, it was required to pay for all of this now. Um, and that made it look like if it was in the red when really that was the, the only reason it was in the red is because it had this obligation. Now, the, it, the history of that is that in 2007, when the bill was passed, if you look at who supported it, there were actually some pretty you know good Democratic supporters who were pro postal service who went along with it. I don't think they realized what was going to happen. Um, in 2006, this was right before a recession. It didn't look, you know, the postal service didn't look like it was going to be in trouble. And at the time, Congress was very concerned about papering over uh, deficits. And what happened is that the Postal Service was paying into the pension, the federal pension, and it was going to be able to reduce those payments because it was found to be overpaying. And so Congress found this way around to keep the money flowing from this off-budget entity, the Postal Service, to federal coffers to make the Congress not look like if it was, um, you know, it, the, the, the budget deficit looked smaller. And the reason some advocates actually supported it at the time was that at least the money was going to go to something that helped the Postal Service, even if it was ra this rapid prepayment. So this weird thing happened in 2006, where you had even some progressive advocates of the Postal Service going along with something that ended up crushing the Postal Service for you know years and years later. Now, the reason it stayed in place for all those years definitely has to do with the fact that you know republicans in particular anti-government republicans were eager to prove that the postal service and government was inefficient and uh it could always point to the postal service losing money or about to lose money um to make that point so it, i think that why it passed was a mixed bag maybe some people knew that it was going to be very detrimental to the postal service but it really had more to do with what congress uh was concerned about appearing at the time but the reason it stayed in place all these years was definitely because uh it sort of fed into this narrative of government being inefficient needing to privatize government that kind of thing it was quite remarkable that when president joe biden announced earlier this year that americans could order for free covid tests at home covid tests um that they could just go to this website and put in their name and address, and they would be sent these free COVID tests. I went through like millions of other Americans, and it was a U.S. Postal Service website, or run website, it was interfaced with the U.S. Postal Service. It was incredibly efficient, it was pretty quick. Um, and the, they're now doing a second round where they're delivering, uh, people can order tests and uh, four more tests, and, and, and it seems that they are even faster this time around. Um, the, did the role that the U.S. Postal Service played during the pandemic, when increased numbers of people had to rely on mail order items, and with this particular COVID test um, government program, did that say to lawmakers, this is an essential agency that we have to preserve? Yes, no, absolutely. And I mean, one of the reasons that the Postal Service Reform Act passed with such bipartisan support is also that the Postal Service is incredibly popular and it's not partisan. So this is, and in fact, rural areas depend on the Postal Service more than 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 urban areas. So it, you know, they had strong Republican support and, you know, rural support, elderly people, people needing medicines. And this was especially true during the pandemic. So you had, you know, this became, you know, it's always been a lifeline for you know, seniors who are at home waiting for medicines or whatever, but more so than ever. Um, and the fact that they were able to ramp up to send these uh, test kits 
you know, so rapidly was heroic. And actually, the Postal Service has done amazingly well during the pandemic. We've, you know, a lot more people are, are uh, using, you know, are, are ordering things online. Package delivery has increased. Meanwhile, a lot of postal workers got sick with COVID, so they were working short staffed. Uh, it was a very dangerous job for a while there, especially pre-vaccine. Um, so I wouldn't say that it was all good, but but it certainly was a heroic effort to maintain this the vital service during this time. Um, and, and yeah, as exemplified most recently by the fact that they were able to ship out just the 270 million test kits and, and they're going to do another round. Um, so no, that that has been great. Um, and also, I mean, during this time, there was also the election when, you know, the a higher share than ever of people voted by mail. It looked like it was going to be a disaster, but in the end, the vote by mail actually happened fairly well, even though about 50% of voters uh, this time around uh, relied on the on the postal service. There, this was during the Trump era, and we had a you know the current postmaster was appointed by Trump, and he contributed to fear mongering around postal um, voting. But in the end, that you know he, it, those fears weren't realized. I mean, I think the fear mongering was effective and bad, but in effect, you know they they did deliver the ballots in time, and uh, you know and and the election went off relatively smoothly. So um, so yeah, it, it's been a it's been a, a an interesting time for the Postal Service and it's come out really well. And oddly enough, I'm I am an absolutely not a fan of the current Postmaster General, but he seems to really want to keep the job. And so he's not always been on the wrong side of things. Sometimes he actually tries to get the job done. And this was the case with this Postal Service Reform Act. I mean, it's natural for people like me who are suspicious of his motives to wonder why he was lobbying so hard for it. But in effect, it was very helpful because Republicans did line up to vote for it and he really wanted to pass. He doesn't want to run an agency that's hobbled uh, with this problem. He wants to do other things that I disagree with, but in this case, uh, you know, he and Republicans and Democrats were all on the same side. Right, Louis DeJoy, post, U.S. Postmaster General, who was a Trump, he's a Trump appointee that, who remains in his position. Um, and when Biden came into power uh, last year, there were, you know, he couldn't immediately just replace him. They, he had to sort of, I understand there are, uh, there's, there's methods to, to do it, and he was replacing members of the board. But um, one of the things that one of the things that came out around Louis DeJoy's oversight was the removal of bulk sorting machines. I remember last year, this was or a couple of years ago, rather, this was a huge issue because it seemed as though he was trying to make the post office less efficient um, at a time when people were relying on it so much. And so if he's doing the right thing because he wants to keep his job, I suppose that's a good thing. And I also wonder if the timing of this bill, that this if this bill benefited from the timing that it was between elections, you know, we do have an election coming up in the fall, but the Republicans really politicized vote by mail because, of course, the more you can increase access to voting, they think the worse their party does. And so maybe if it had come, if the vote had come closer to the election, they might not have fallen as much in line. So do you think that the Postal Service is going to remain in the business of helping people vote uh, through the future as well? I think it's hard to turn back the clock, but in the meantime, you know, they can, um, you know, there, there's also legislation, you know, there, there's all kinds of voter suppression legislation happening up in different states. And so, you know, there are a lot of Western states that already rely fully on this and they're not all d Democratic or Republican areas. So it, I think there was an attempt, I think that the reason that Trump, the president, former President Trump was trying to do some scaremongering around voting by mail is that a lot of times Democrat 
Democratic voters, like a Democratic base, are people who might, you know, more likely be people working multiple jobs, more likely people uh, in places where, you know, voting is more challenging for them. Like there are fewer, uh, you know, locations and their uh, jobs are less flexible and they have children and, you know, and so anything that prevents people from making sure that they get their ballots in in time increases the chances that election day will come and somehow they can't swing it. They don't have the transportation or, you know, and so I think that this was, you know, anything secure they wanted to avoid. But in fact, it's not really clear that it helped, you know, that voting by mail help, helps Democrats over Republicans because seniors are Republican leaning these days and seniors disproportionately benefit from it. So there was some question about whether it was even a sound strategy on the part of Republicans. And it probably depends on the state, the location, um, you know, but, but, I think that was definitely the the intent right. of uh, the president's the former president's scaremongering around that. Um, There's also the sense that you know anything government run is bad. Private uh, solutions are always better. That that tends to be the standard Republican line, and over and over again, the U.S. Post Office um, shows that a government agency that doesn't suck profits <laughs> as part of the the charges that it uh, applies to its services um, can, you know, the, the fact that it is efficient, that it's well run, tends to give lie to the Republican claim that all things government run are bad and all things privately run are good. Uh, again, this seems to be something that the Republicans for once overlooked in supporting this bill. Yes. And I, I mean, I think that the push for I mean, there's always a push for privatizing parts of the Postal Service. There are different special interests involved. You know, there's people who ship stuff. There's people who compete in delivery there, you know, and they have different interests at different times. And and the enthusiasm among sort of doctrinaire Republicans for what I call front door privatization. So just formally saying, uh, you know, we don't think the government should be in the business of delivering. We want to privatize this, make it, you know, um, it, versus a more insidious form of privatization where they give discounts, for example, to companies to pre-sort, to do some of the work of the Postal Service before they drop they drop mail off or packages off. So there, I think that, you know, DeJoy comes from that world where he doesn't really care. He doesn't, I don't think he's particularly interested or, you know, in, in, doing away with the postal service as a government agency what he wants to do is create more business for his former employers uh his former his you know so logistics companies delivery companies sorting companies um and that has that's one of the reasons that the postal service has been shrinking and one of the ways he does that is that you know his 10-year plan slowed the mail you know it you know there was some push to talk about you know reducing delivery times making the services to rural areas less these kinds of things you know he wants to make it uh, you know, he wants to increase the private sector's um, role in mail delivery, but without necessarily uh, going at it, uh, you know, like the libertarians wanted to do at various points. There, there was a sort of a push to do this during President Trump. There was a push to do this during uh, President Reagan. So, you know, more ideologically inclined uh, Republicans who, who wanted, you know, this was the jewel in the crown of government. They wanted to privatize it. Nowadays, it's more like, can we shrink it? And can we do it surreptitiously? And that is, you know, the the unions are fighting that uh, very strongly, and it's a very bad thing because government actually, in this case, is very efficient, very popular. Uh, but again, there's there are balancing competing interests because now a lot of private sector companies actually benefit from the postal service being obliged to do this efficient 
daily delivery six days a week. Right. Um, so it, there's, We're talking you about know, things like Amazon. Special emphasis on all sides, yeah. Corporations like yeah. Amazon that are able to get their products to customers incredibly efficiently and at a ridiculously low cost because they're relying on these government services, basically. Yeah. So that is a big scary thing is that Amazon has gone from being a major customer to being a customer and competitor as mm. it's expanded its delivery operations. And it will do so, it will sort of cherry pick the more cost-effective routes and leave the postal service saddled with the daily delivery in the more expensive, more spread out rural areas. Um, and so that is definitely a threat. I should say, you know, I, I don't want to switch tax, but another interesting fight that's coming up related to the postal service is the whole electric vehicle fight. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but one of the things that's interesting is that Amazon is moving to electric vehicles, which proves that it's cost effective and that it makes financial sense because Amazon's not going to be doing this for PR reasons. Amazon, frankly, doesn't care too much about PR, uh, I don't think. So, yeah. so now the, the battle, the next battle that's brewing is about this contract that the Postmaster DeJoy and the current uh, uh, Postal Service Administration signed with a company in Wisconsin to replace its aging uh, fleet of vehicles. And uh, it was assumed and intended that the majority of these vehicles would be electrified, which makes a lot of sense for vans that you know carry a lot of stuff and stop and start all day. Uh, it makes, you know, they, they, they should be the first, not the last vehicles to be electrified. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Amazon is moving in that direction. Um, but to everyone's surprise, DeJoy went ahead with a uh, contract that was poorly researched, poorly vetted, um, and that where only 10% of vehicles would be electric. Uh, and this is being challenged on the Hill, is being challenged by the White House, is being challenged by environmental groups. Um, and it, you know, it's a very bad, it's even being challenged by unions now because it looks like not only did they uh, hire, you know, get a company that uh, plans to make these vehicles non-electric for the most part, but they're moving uh, production to a non-union state to, to Carolina. Um, instead of Wisconsin, where they were at least assumed to be, uh, you, you know, they were going to be UAW union-made vehicles. And these are gas-guzzling vehicles at, a, at the critical time when we see gas prices rising, which would, of course, then increase the bottom line for the U.S. Um, Postal Service that might lead to an increase in uh, mail charges. Uh, the cost of transportation keeps increasing, but if we're attached to gas-guzzling vehicles, that's only going to go up, right? Yeah, I mean... So what happened, I mean, the postmaster DeJoy is known for playing fast and loose. I mean, he, you know, he, you know, breaks things and then apologizes later or doesn't apologize, whichever. But in, this is an example of that. They, they were supposed to do an environmental assessment and they made the deal essentially before the assessment was done. And the assessment itself is completely ridiculous. Um, they assumed in the environmental assessment that these vehicles would be getting 30 miles roughly a little slightly under, I think, 29 miles uh, per gallon, um, which, you know, is they, they'll get half that or less, depending on whether they're also being air conditioned. Um, they also assumed, you know, that gas prices would be about, I think, $2.19 a gallon. They were already higher than that, even before the current spike. There's no way that, you know, gas prices were going to stay at $2.19 a gallon. And, you know, again, they were assuming about twice the mileage uh, that these vehicles will actually get. So, you know, it was the, the, the books were cooked and, you know, in order to justify uh, and, and make the gas powered vehicles look more uh, cost effective. And so this is what, this is why there's, you know, there's, and it also counters a, a, a 
a rule that you know the, the White House is challenging it on the basis of the fact that you know the administration has pledged to turn all the federal uh, fleet, which this is about a third of federal uh, vehicles, you know, into uh, uh, you know to, to to go away from fossil fuels by 2035. So this is a 10-year plan. They're replacing the virtually the entire fleet, um, and and there's only 10% of them are going to be. Um, electric so you know it, it goes against that it goes again i mean you know it the epa is challenging it the, the white house council on environmental i think i forgot what the acronym is but you know the the white house is challenging it uh um their uh, uh congress the members of congress are challenging it specifically um representative gerald Connolly is challenging it um and you know so the, it's I, i'm i'm really hoping that they will succeed in uh blocking this um and the other thing i think that gets little play is that it it's really important that these vehicles be an electric. Um, this is the, you know, delivery vans are absolutely well suited to be electrified because they stop and start, you know, there's no, you're not getting, you know, momentum on, on these, these cars. But the other thing is that um, there's a Congresswoman, and I think this has received relatively little play, but I think she deserves some credit. There's a Congresswoman from uh, Michigan, uh, Brenda Lawrence, who herself used to work for USPS and has pointed out that one of the problems we have is a chicken egg problem with electric vehicles where a lot of people don't want to invest in an electric car because they are not sure that in large parts of the country there will be places to recharge conveniently and so she's pointed out that if every post office had a recharging station then you know, that that problem would be done away with because there's nothing no other you know there's there are more post offices than mcdonald's there's more po there are post offices in every small town in america wow, this would guarantee access to postal recharging and if you know it could be done in conjunction with or separate from the you know recharging stations that are going to be need to be built in the lots where the van the, the actual electrical vehicles recharge overnight but you know theoretically those could be combined too because the postal vehicles you know are going to be recharged overnight um you know people could be recharging during the day i mean that you know whether it's done at the post office or in these lots or whatever you know it's it's really makes sense to build out that network all at once and uh, so it would be the worst uh, lost opportunity not to do that. Well, I want to thank you so much, Monique, for joining us today. Really appreciate your expertise on this issue and how nice to have a conversation about uh, something fairly good news for once in terms of the Postal Service Reform Bill. Thank you so much, Monique. Thank you so much for having me. My guest has been Monique Morrissey. She is an economist at the Economic Policy Institute, who, and her expertise includes the U.S. Postal Service. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Are You With Sonali.